0: He ora and welcome to Good Fellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners, the Auckland Faculty. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler, a specialist GP, and today I'm talking to Dr. Cheryl Buhe about ADHD in adults. Cheryl is an Otago Medical School graduate and a fellow of the Royal Australia and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists. She is working for White Matter DHB Specialist Mental Health Services as their primary care liaison psychiatrist. She provides specialist support to GP practices, mainly within the West Auckland area. She's involved with GP teaching and is a contributor to the mental health resources on the regional health pathways. Welcome back to the podcast, Cheryl. It's lovely to Thank have you Thank you. Thank you for having me again. Yes, Absolutely. So we're talking about adult ADHD and this seems to be something that I'm seeing more of in my practice. So I wonder if you can tell us about the prevalence of adult ADHD, Cheryl, and are the numbers actually increasing? So ADHD, which
1: is which stands for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, is a neurodevelopmental disorder which primarily affects the frontal lobe and is thought to be lifelong and it causes inattention Hyperactivity or and or impulsivity, and the prevalence of ADHD is about five to nine percent in children and adolescents, and in adults the prevalence is about three to five percent. It is usually seen in childhood, but is not necessarily diagnosed at the time. So when we look at the prevalence data of adult ADHD, this has increased according to um, some international studies, and in the US um, the estimates showed that the prevalence rates have doubled from 0.43% in the previous decade to 0.96% in 2019. So the rates are increasing worldwide. So more than 50% of those diagnosed um, with ADHD in childhood and adolescence continue to have significant and impairing symptoms in adult life. And in adulthood, ADHD is highly comorbid with other mental health disorders. And the comorbidity is estimated to be about 85%. And the disorders, uh, the mental health conditions we see include anxiety disorders, major mood disorders such as depression or bipolar disorder and substance use disorders.
0: So are there any predisposing factors that we need to know about uh, that predispose to the development of this condition?
1: So there are uh, several risk factors for ADHD. So there are the genetic risk factors, as ADHD um, is considered highly heritable, and the involvement of genes is complex. Like for example, parents of children with ADHD have at least 50% chance of having a child with ADHD. 25% of children with ADHD have parents who meet the diagnostic criteria for ADHD. And twin studies have 76% 76% heritability. And also, there is a 30 to 40% risk of ADHD in first degree relatives of those diagnosed with ADHD. So, genetic risk factors are important and significant in this uh, condition. Other risk factors include um, in utero fetal exposure to alcohol and smoking, any disruption to the blood oxygen flow to the fetal brain during pregnancy and birth history of traumatic brain, brain injury, very low birth weight, um, environmental neurotoxin and exposure, if you've had any brain infections such as meningitis and in- encephalitis, and also early deprivation or adversity such as um,
0: history of child abuse and neglect. So our history is crucial there, isn't it? Yes, definitely. So how do we diagnose this? So according to
1: the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, so that's the bible of psychiatric diagnoses, otherwise referred to as the DSM-5, ADHD can be diagnosed when current symptoms are present sufficiently and that the age of these symptoms is by the age of 12 years and that the symptoms lead to impairment in two or more roles and that the impairment is present for the past six months or more, and that there is a lack of an alternative explanation to why a person is impaired. So in terms of looking at the symptoms and signs of, um, for ADHD, they are clustered into either inattention symptoms or hyperactive impulsive symptoms. And the inattention symptoms include, you know, making careless mistakes, lacking attention to detail, difficulty sustaining attention person doesn't seem to listen when spoken to directly, they don't follow through on tasks and instructions, and they uh, exhibit poor organization, they avoid tasks if they need to exert sustained mental effort, they frequently lose things for tasks and activities, they're easily distracted and is forgetful in daily activity. So those are the features or the inattention symptoms. In terms of the hyperactive impulsive symptoms, um, these include, you know, fidgeting with the hands or feet or being unable to sit still um, while seated. They leave their seat um, in situations when remaining seated is expected. They feel restless. They can't engage in quiet, leisurely activities, or they appear to be on the go or they're as if they're driven by a mo- motor. They can talk excessively, blurt out answers, can't wait their turn or interrupt or intrude on others. So these are all features that you might see in children, which um, that's when ADHD is um, diagnosed. But um, in terms of the different types of ADHD, this could be predominantly inattentive type or predominantly hyperactive impulsive type. It may be a combined type or unspecified type where the full criteria are not met but the symptoms cause impairment in a person's life. So in children you need at least six of those nine symptoms in the cluster from the relevant that these symptoms are present um, um, over a period of time but in adults ages 17 and above you need only five out of the nine instead
0: of six. And you've mentioned children there so Often ADHD presents in childhood, what percentage carries on to be a problem in adulthood and how do symptoms typically change over the lifespan?
1: So the core features of ADHD remain the same through adulthood and but however the context or the situations in in which these features present will differ between a child and an adult because um, it depends on the demands made on the person by their environment and supports available. So, and other factors include a person's coping strategies, cognitive capacity, and insight. So, in adults, the functional impairment can be in relation to their relationships, um, their occupation and profession. For example, you know, separation in relationships, absenteeism, and low productivity in the job setting, their have an increased likelihood of quitting or changing jobs or being fired from their jobs. But regardless of academic and, you know, personal occupational or professional success, many individuals with ADHD also struggle with low self-esteem, which may be due to their lifelong inconsistent performance. And because of past negative feedback they received for perceived failures. So a child, um, may have the supports or the scaffolding in place growing up but as a person you know gets older there is increased responsibilities and expectations that's why these symptoms um, become you know they develop at that point in time.
0: Perhaps the times when they leave home and there's no longer uh, someone pushing them along and giving them yes. the strategies to to get out the door. Yes that's,
1: that's right yeah they have all the supports they have their family and school and as they get older, there's more pressure, there's more responsibility, and that support may not be there. So
0: So when someone presents to us in primary care, there's often a common story, but what are the most commonly complained of symptoms that people will present with?
1: So there are a variety of different ADHD-related presentations to primary care, and here are a few examples. So one is an adult can present to their GP wondering if they have ADHD. So these may include parents of children who have been recently assessed for ADHD and they're wondering, oh, do I have that as well? Or the person might have read or heard about ADHD in adulthood and then can relate to the symptoms and then they turn up to their GP going, do I have ADHD? So they Google and do online searches. Another possible presentation to primary care is if an adult with undiagnosed ADHD um, has not experienced significant symptoms prior to adulthood due to having that scaffolding, but are subjected to increased responsibilities and demands. So their, you know, difficulties are only coming to the fore um, as an adult. And then you have the group of adults who have had a diagnosis of ADHD when they were a child, but they, at some point when they were young, they were on ADHD treatment, but stopped um, due to side effects or They think, look, I don't want to take my medications anymore. They're worried about social stigma. But then the symptoms come back and then they represent um, to their GP with functional impairment. Like I mentioned before, because of the high comorbidity with other conditions, um, some adults with undiagnosed ADHD can seek treatment for what may appear to be another mental health condition. Um, So maybe a primary mood anxiety disorder or they may seek medical attention for a substance use disorder um, as a consequence of risky behaviours or trauma or you know, unplanned pregnancies.
0: So whenever we're thinking of a new diagnosis, we often need to think about the differential diagnosis. So what things do we need to consider here, Cheryl?
1: So if you're suspecting is this ADHD, you do need to have a thorough history, a thorough exam and request the relevant investigation. So what the purpose is to confirm the diagnosis of ADHD, like does the person meet criteria? What risk factors are present? How severe are the symptoms and the impairment in their functioning? And then you also would want to identify any comorbid conditions and also exclude any other causes that may mimic or aggravate ADHD symptoms. And on top of that, you also have to evaluate. In, for any potential contraindications to ADHD medication. So it's quite a lot to cover. And as part of that workup, you may include obtaining other relevant information like school reports. So primary and high school reports um, documenting difficulty in the classroom, any previous assessments or letters um, if ADHD was diagnosed prior to the referral. So if they saw a pediatrician or A private psychiatrist, it is useful to have that um, available. It'll be good to have details of any identified family member or support support person who can give collateral information regarding a person's functioning, especially when they were younger. And if this is not available, an an alternative might be an employer who, if the person consents, can be contacted to provide an overview of a person's work performance. So you've got all that collateral. And in addition, there are also, there are also rating scales and questionnaires, um, such as the adult ADHD self-report scale, or the CONNORS adult ADHD rating scales, so or otherwise known as the CARS, which is what we use in White DHB. And these are used to um, enrich the clinical interview. And these on their own are not sufficient to make a diagnosis of ADHD as you may also screen positively in these tests if you have an anxiety or depressive disorder, say. So once you've done the history and and, um, done some rating scales, got the collateral, you need to get a good um, cardiovascular history as well, um, which includes assessment of any active um, cardiac symptoms, any family history of suspected cardiac sudden death, cardiomyopathy, arrhythmia, or severe hypertension. And um, because contraindications to stimulant treatment include symptomatic cardiovascular disease, moderate to severe hypertension, as well as other conditions like narrow angle glaucoma, untreated hyperthyroidism, theochromocytoma, or if a person has a history of mania or psychosis. So getting to the part of differential diagnoses, differentials can include mental health and physical health conditions. So Possible psychiatric disorders that are part of your differentials include a depressive disorder, bipolar disorder, generalized anxiety, um, substance use disorder, or even personality disorders, such as, you know, borderline or antisocial personality. In terms of medical conditions that um, may mimic the adult ADHD features, these include, it can, it's quite broad, but they can include hyperthyroidism seizure disorder, like petty mild seizures or partial complex seizures, hearing deficits, hepatic disease, lead toxicity, so sleep apnea, drug interactions, head injury. So it is quite broad. And these differentials will be, um, that's why you need a good history and further workup depending on what the person discloses at the consult.
0: So Cheryl, you've mentioned uh, physical examination and cardiovascular examination and also some conditions we need to exclude. So when we examine our patient and we are taking the lab test form box, what are we doing? What are we looking for?
1: So here, the physical examination and investigations are requested to exclude differential diagnosis. diagnosis. So this will be influenced by your history and what the person discloses to you. and. Also, you need to, um, as part of your physical exam, evaluate for any contraindications to stimulant treatment and something that will help monitor for adverse effects if you do, you know, if a person has started on stimulant treatment. But for a physical exam, you would need to have a baseline weight and monitoring of that every six months as stimulant treatment can lead to loss of appetite and weight. You also need a baseline blood pressure and heart rate and also rechecking these before and after each dose change of stimulant treatment and also at six monthly as um, stimulants can you know, increase your heart rate and affect your blood pressure. And you can also examine for ticks if these are present um, because stimulant treatment can worsen these. And if you're looking at tests to... Um, To request, we recommend doing a random urine drug screen to verify that the patient is taking the prescribed stimulant treatment and also to to screen for non-prescribed or illicit drug use. You'd request a baseline ECG, especially if there's a family history of serious cardiac disease or history of um, sudden sudden death um, in the family, or if you find any abnormalities in your cardiovascular exam. However, it's not recommended if there's no history of heart disease or normal physical exam, especially in a young person, you wouldn't usually do a baseline ECG. You can also ask for a cardiology review if if there is a history of uh, established or suspected cardiac disease. In terms of blood tests, again, you know, it's to exclude any medical causes, so you would include your liver function and thyroid function at least. And routine blood tests or ECGs for people taking medication for ADHD, they're not routinely offered unless it is uh, clinically indicated.
0: Thinking red flags, we always like to exclude red flags. Mm-hmm. What are the red flags uh, in ADHD? So
1: The red flags for ADHD, so you can suspect ADHD as if undiagnosed, it can impact significantly on a person's functioning in multiple domains. So, in terms of relationships, it can impact through you know it may manifest as anger, control problems, you know problems within the family or in their in their marital um, relationships. Organizational skills um, can be affected, which can impact on their work or study. So. They may have time management difficulties, are often missing or are are late for appointments. They do not get to finish tasks or projects and are unable to manage their finances. The person may also have problems in maintaining routines at home. Their sleeping patterns are erratic um, and they're not able to perform other self-regulating activities. And they may have issues with addiction and also problems with even driving such as speeding tickets or having frequent or serious accidents. So if these things are, you know, you're noting these, it's good to just think, you know, what else is going on that might be contributing to, to these problems.
0: And Cheryl, you mentioned before some comorbid conditions. What specifically do we want to know about these and why?
1: So as, uh, as i mentioned earlier, there's the high comorbidity between ADHD and other conditions. So depending on what the comorbid condition is, this may influence um, the order or the priority of which condition should be treated first. Um, or it may also impact the treatment of ADHD medica- uh, treatment, such as you know, the rate of titration of stimulants. So if you have psychosis, severe mood disorder or substance use disorder or any type of bipolar disorder, these should be identified and treated prior to treating the ADHD as these may complicate treatment. And not surprising if there are any significant safety concerns, if a person is suicidal or wanting to hurt other people, you know, you have to contain the risk first before you treat the ADHD so I'll just give a few examples. So if you have a comorbid um, anxiety disorder with ADHD, you treat the most impairing condition first. And you might want to titrate any stimulant medications at a slower rate because it might exacerbate their anxiety. And if you have comorbid depression with ADHD, if the depression is mild, you might treat the ADHD first. But if the depression is severe or or if a person is suicidal, the treatment for depression is the priority. And you often, a person can have a concurrent treatment of ADHD and major depression. So they might need antidepressants as well as their ADHD medications. And that's, that's common. If a person has bipolar disorder and ADHD, the treatment should be aimed at stabilizing the bipolar disorder first. And then you treat the ADHD. And evidence showed that stimulants have been shown to be safe and effective in patients with bipolar disorder once their symptoms have been stabilized. So you need to sort out the mood disturbance first. If you have something like obsessive-compulsive disorder with ADHD, you can treat both at the same time as it, you know, it doesn't affect um, one or the other. Um, and you can just carry on with the treatment of both conditions.
0: I'm just thinking about diagnosis now. Is this a diagnosis that in primary care we can make or we need to refer on to a psychiatrist for formal diagnosis? So
1: formal diagnosis is made by a psychiatrist who, you know, as you know, we've spoken about earlier, there's lots of comorbid conditions, lots, lots of risk factors. So the psychiatrist will be able to formulate and diagnose those Comorbid conditions and can complete the initial application for special authority numbers if pharmacological treatments are needed. So, a referral can be to a private or public specialist mental health provider. However, there may be eligibility criteria that one needs to meet if the patient is to be offered an assessment for ADHD in the public sector because of limited resources. So, such criteria may include. a person has you know has a comorbid mental health condition or their level of functional impairment is at least you know moderate to severe and that they're able the person's able to provide a source of collateral information for formal testing as well as documentation such as old school reports to confirm that their difficulties have been present before the age of 12 so it is you know but that's uh that's change forever changing, but this is how we are with uh, White Matter uh, DHB anyway.
0: And moving on to the management now, what would our patients expect as far as management goes? Please.
1: So management is uh, it's comprehensive. So it's not not all about medications. Um, it's collaborative, multimodal, and it focuses on the person's strengths. And the interventions can include medications such as stimulants as well as talking therapies.
0: Often our patients, Cheryl, will ask us if there are other things apart from drugs that they can use, uh, perhaps Mm. supplements or talking therapies, CBT. What's your Mm. experience here and what's the evidence for these things or not?
1: So psychosocial interventions for ADHD are useful adjuncts to pharmacological management um, and can also help comorbid conditions. So there's evidence base for the you know these interventions. So cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT. One study suggested that there's greater improvement if you combine CBT with medications. Um, CBT can also be considered if there is partial or no response to. Pharmacological management and it can help comorbid conditions. As we know, it's uh, helpful in depression or anxiety. So if a person has comorbid mood and anxiety issues, the CBT would help with that as well. Other interventions interventions include behavioral interventions, you know, social skills training, and mindfulness. And you can also look at environmental interventions that can help establish a structure and routine for a person through the use of aids, like you know, um, reminding a person about upcoming deadlines and you know, social supports that you can consider include, you know, getting extra support for study and in the workplace. And there's good evidence for that according to um, guidelines. There is no evidence for natural remedies, however, for ADHD.
0: So talking medications now, there seems to be a hierarchy of medications, but methylphenidate appears to be first line. Can you talk us through the management of this drug, how it works, how to initiate, how to increase, what are we monitoring?
1: So, there's a role for medications um, to help improve ADHD symptoms. And I just wanted to say that when you're prescribing medications for ADHD, it is important to identify target symptoms and ensure that you've given it a good go. So at least a six-week trial And obtaining collateral information um, regarding treatment, progress is also valuable. So I get asked, oh, if I give someone Ritalin and they feel better, does that mean they have ADHD? And there are some people who they come and see their GP or a psychiatrist, they said, I tried my friend's Ritalin and I feel I feel heaps better. Do I have ADHD? But Unfortunately, medication response alone does not confirm a diagnosis of ADHD. So going to methylphenidate, so that's one stimulant available in New Zealand, and uh, stimulant medications are considered first-line treatment for ADHD. And the other one is dexamphetamine, and they have similar um, efficacy and tolerability profiles. So looking at methylphenidate, it acts by blocking the reuptake of norepinephrine and dopamine by neurons. Um, you titrate it over four to six weeks. There are different preparations available with each with pros and cons, but they affect each have um, impact on you know, compliance or um, if you if someone wants to maintain privacy or have trouble remembering when to take their medications that might influence which formulation you choose. And methylphenidate, there's also a potential risk of arrhythmia. So if you look at the preparations available, there are four funded preparations in New Zealand. So there's the immediate release form, so Rubifin IR or Ritalin IR, and um, the duration of action lasts for about four hours. So some people take it multiple times a day, depending on what they need. Then there's the sustained release preparation, which lasts for eight hours which recently uh, you'll be aware that Ritalin SR is no longer available in New Zealand, but Rubifin SR um, is still around. Then you've got your extended release formulation, um, which is, uh, they provide 24-hour cover, so you take it once a day. And the types of extended release uh, formulations are Concerta and Teva, which is a new one. And then you've got your bona fide release, uh, which is Ritalin LA, which also provides 24-hour cover. So with the special authority numbers, I get called about this a lot, but the numbers for IR and SR, the immediate and sustained release preparations are the same. And the numbers for concerta and the long acting preparations are the same. So for Concerta and Ritalin LA, you consider using this if the person has been taking immediate or sustained release, but it's been ineffective due to compliance difficulties, or if you are worried about the risk of diversion or abuse of the immediate release methylphenidate. So I mentioned TIVA before. So TIVA is. Um, is a funded uh, formulation of um, methylphenidate extended release and it's been made available to to us as first-line option for treatment of ADHD. So if you're taking the immediate and sustained release preparation and you'd like to switch a person to Tiva, the special authority number would be the same so you don't need to apply for a new number. So how you would start uh, someone on methylphenidate, you might start someone on the sustained release, um, the SR preparation, for example, 20 milligrams a day for a couple of days, and then you increase it to 20 milligrams twice a day. Adults usually need about 40 milligrams daily dose of sustained release. And if after a week there is lack of response, you can adjust it as you negotiated with the person so you might add a bit of immediate release. In the morning to just help get it going, uh, get the effect going sooner. Uh, some people start on immediate release first, so they might do five milligrams morning and midday, and then you can of the immediate release, and you can increase this dose by five milligrams a, a week, and then depending on the person's preference, you might switch from the immediate. Um, release preparation to assisting release preparation. So it's a lot of uh, uh, reviewing and negotiating. And in terms of side effects, what you would look for, um, so these side effects are usually dose dependent, but the common ones are insomnia. So not to take it later in the day, because you'll be wide awake. It can increase your um, anxiety, agitation, you might get a bit irritable, can get a headache, feel dizzy. And as I mentioned weight loss and um, reduction in appetite can also happen. So the, in terms of the serious side effects, you know, there's tachycardia, palpitations or hypertension, it can precipitate mania or psychosis, Um, it can cause seizures, and there's note of sudden death, risk of sudden death, but that is very rare. And of note, alcohol can increase methylphenidate levels, so you can uh, just be mindful of that. And With monitoring, we talked about six-monthly monitoring of weight and checking the blood pressure and heart rate um, before and after each dose change and at least every three months.
0: Just wonder if you can clarify a couple of things. Um, You've mentioned weight as something to monitor. What's an acceptable weight change?
1: Uh, There's nothing that's um, been elaborated on that, um, I'm afraid, but... um, so at least you're looking at the, the trends. And, yeah. and
0: also in children, we often give them a holiday over the weekends. Is that something that we do with our adult patients?
1: You can do that if it's their preference. Um, some people t- just take the their medications. You know, if they're studying, they might just take it during the week and then have a break. So you can do that for um, the adult person with ADHD as well.
0: Thanks, Cheryl. Is there anything else that you think we should know about as far as managing, diagnosing, looking after these patients generally?
1: Just consider obtaining advice from specialist mental health services in these sorts of situations, you know, some like when the diagnosis is unclear and that there are severe symptoms or functional impairment. If the presentation is complex and you're suspecting comorbid disorders or if a person has been diagnosed as having ADHD, however, their treatment—they're not tolerating it, or there's lack of response, and they need a review. So, um, and depending on your area, um, which catchment area you work, um, GPs can access specialist mental health advisory lines where a GP can consult with a psychiatrist over the phone, and you can troubleshoot that way. And it can also um, help with renewing special authority um, numbers so they come they come around quite quickly and just explore whether the service is available rather than referring formally um, onto specialist services which can be take some time to you know get triaged and things so those are the things that I would consider.
0: Fantastic and you did mention uh, before we came online that there is a new health pathway due out in Auckland yes. which will be a great resources for us yes. in Auckland. yes so thank you for your work on that and to conclude our podcast today Cheryl some take-home messages for our listeners please
1: so take-home messages do consider ADHD as a possible you know primary or comorbid diagnosis in adults who present to your practice with problems with inattention hyperactivity or impulsivity as if it's untreated, untreated ADHD can contribute to impairment in a person's functioning. As I mentioned earlier, assessment for ADHD is comprehensive and it's not merely, you know, simple history taking. It's a lot of work that goes into it, but we do need to consider possible differential diagnoses and if if a person is suitable for pharmacological management, for example, with stimulants. So, in terms of management, there is a role for medications, but again, it is multimodal and do not forget about psychosocial interventions, which are also helpful. And um, in general, ADHD treatments can be used across the lifespan. So, according to guidelines, there is no maximum age to treat ADHD if the general health and the cardiovascular status of the patient permits. And prescribers should should weigh the risks and the benefits of treating adh adhd patients with these medications
0: wonderful thank you cheryl it's been a pleasure having you back on the podcast uh, thank you and also we'll make
1: available on the Goodfellow unit a handout that you can print off and it's got some of the information that we covered today so hopefully um, yeah, the
0: practitioners will find it helpful Wonderful. You do make the best <laughs> out. Thank you so much, Cheryl. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. So if you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim some CPD points, please log these. You'll find Cheryl's handout and some other resources on our website, goodfellowunit.org. There's also free to access webinars, med cases and e-learning modules. Thank you for listening.